Uh, Let me pray. Almighty God, the fountain of all wisdom, who knows our necessities even before we ask, and our ignorance in asking, we come before you, asking you to have compassion upon our infirmities, and those things which are for our unworthiness we dare not, and for our blindness we cannot ask. But you promise to give us for the worthiness of thy Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, there's a, an instance in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, where a man comes to Jesus and he has a son who is possessed by an unclean spirit. And he is troubled about his son's condition. And he says to Jesus, If you can do anything, if you can do anything, would you have compassion on us? And Jesus said, if you can, you know, nothing is impossible for him who believes. And the father immediately responds, I believe. Help my unbelief. Um, the father was in a desperate place. His son was having this evil spirit that was throwing him into fire and throwing him into the water and doing these terrible things that was obviously causing danger to his son's life. And... Um, but yet he, in this desperate place, he came to Jesus, probably only for hearsay. You know, he probably heard there's this one who is being said to be the Messiah, and he is performing these miracles. And out of desperation, the father brings his son. There was this very relational, very real, very raw need that he had, and he brought his son to Jesus. Um, it, but it's this relational trust that I wanted to really hone in on this morning and this idea of, of what role does doubt play in our own faith? Uh, whether, whether you're a person of Christian faith, whether you're seeking understanding, uh, whether, whether you're perhaps an agnostic who's wondering, am I right about this, that there's no God? Uh, at, at the bottom of things, every one of us, I think we carry around in us this sense of I believe but help my unbelief. Um, because we live, after all, in an age of increasing skepticism, of increasing polarization, of those who are perhaps very ardently confident about what they think, whether it's politically or religiously, about the culture, about the world, um, and those who maybe are holding a more open hand of, I'm not really sure what to think. Um, and so you, or perhaps someone you know, has probably at some point walked away from the church. Um, come to a place in their, their life where they say, I just, I'm not sure that I believe this anymore. Whether it's an, an aspect of doctrine, whether it's an aspect of how the church runs, of how Christians behave, the, you know, the hypocritical nature of dealing with how, how, how does Christianity in the world look. Um, or somebody who's maybe walked away or, or is hanging on by a thread. Um, because it, this faith that we profess somehow maybe hasn't seemed to make a point of contact. Or, or there feels like there's a gap between what I'm professing and hoping is true and what I'm really experiencing in this world. And so uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about how faith is not really static. It's not, it's not this thing that is, that is always in the same place at the same time. Because truth is, all of us, we are growing. And we are maturing. And we are... Uh, becoming in various ways because experiences shape us. They form us. Uh, they impact us. 
And so, you know, what happens when, when something that you have held to be true or just taken even for granted that you believe suddenly comes into crisis or comes into conflict with what you are experiencing or perhaps what you're not experiencing? Um, I talk to people who are on a spectrum of places in their, their belief in God or their walk with Christ. And they can range from, he feels so present to me in this place of dire need, to I feel like I'm at a crisis point where I'm wondering. I'd always believed this my whole life, and now I'm coming to a place where this doesn't seem real to me. You know, I, I pray, and I want it to be true. And yet, I feel a void. And I'm wondering, what is this? Um, the, the famous philosopher Bertrand Russell, he was an atheist philosopher. And um, he, he, he was asked once to, how would you respond if at the end judgment you're standing before God? What would your explanation for your just ardent, persistent unbelief be? And Bertrand Russell said, I would say to God, you gave us insufficient evidence. Wow. I mean, that's, that's a bold statement, <laughs> you know, to make to the creator of the universe. Um, you gave us insufficient evidence. Now, Paul, to the contrary, in Romans 1 would say, no, he's given us ample evidence. You know, nobody is without excuse because natural revelation. The, you know, you can't look at this world and not think this has an origin point and a personal God. But yet, I think in our post-enlightenment rationalism, there is something to be said for um, we're used to having things that we think or know about being confirmed or verified by some sensory element. I mean, the scientific theory. You know, we tend to base things on factual knowledge. One plus one is two. Uh, you know, because we, we understand why the color of leaves are green and how you know, photosynthesis works. We have these, these scientific explanations for why the world is the way it is. And we have facts and we stack them up and we um, do uh, experimentation and we try to verify what our um, theses are. And so we ask questions. And this all comes from Descartes, was a philosopher in the 17th, 18th century. You know, and he was actually commissioned by the church to come up with a foolproof explanation, philosophical explanation for God. And he came up with this, I, you know, I, I think, therefore I am, is the famous saying. I think, therefore I exist, <clears throat> as, as being a basis for which we can actually extrapolate and figure out, oh, there must be a personal God. Well, that kind of backfired on the church at the end of the day because it, it made this sense that we could find absolute certainty about knowledge that we can find. And, and it's verifiable. It's, it's fixed on this principle of certainty. And uh, the truth, though, is that rational doubt, if you know somebody who goes, I really doubt that there's God, or I don't have enough evidence, you know, that there really is this, um, you know, a spirit God, because all I know is the real world, and in the real world, things are concrete and real. You know, I'm talking to a friend, and they're right in front of me. I can see them. I can hear them. We can shake hands. We can hug. This God you're talking about, I can't do any of those things. It doesn't match and meet my criteria. So I, so I significantly doubt that. But the truth is, even the doubter has a deep faith. They have a faith in their understanding. They have a faith in their senses, not... Um, 
in their senses, giving them correct information. They also have, have a, fa- a faith in their understanding to interpret that sensory information and form more than an, opi- an opinion, but also a deep-seated opinion about what that means for mm-hmm. them. And so the reality is uh, that kind of knowledge, a scientific or fact-based or um, empirical evidence-based knowledge, it doesn't require a lot of risk on the part of the knower. Um, There's not a personal risk there. But the things that are really important in our lives, uh, deeper questions, am I loved? Is there really meaning in this life? Uh, Does a a piece of music, is it beautiful? Does it evoke uh, something within me? Does watching a majestic sunset impact me in the way I see the world? Those kinds of questions are not answerable by verifiable data, empirical data. Um, That's another kind of knowledge altogether. That's a more relational knowledge. This is the kind of knowledge we have in in a lot of places in Scripture with this man who comes to Jesus. I believe, but help my unbelief. I so want this to be true, but yet I also carry doubt with me. What if this doesn't work? What if you don't heal my son? And the, the cost of that is very high, isn't it? And the cost for all of us of believing is Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away our sin is quite high. Because if he's not, what does that mean? Does life ultimately have meaning? But if he is, it changes everything as Andrew just preached. Our robes are white because of the blood of Christ, because of the blood of the Lamb, that we, we now have right standing with God and we can enjoy Him forever. And so, so these, these are not... Uh, these matters are very significant to us. Um, so what does it mean to live in this world with a, with a sense of um, carrying with us both a sense of faith, but also, at times, um, deep-seated doubt? And so... I wanted to just play a quick clip from the movie Doubt. Let's see. Hope I have the volume up on this. Would you mind checking the knob on that volume? I'm sorry, I didn't uh, get a chance to. It's all the way up. Oh, okay, okay. This is buffering, is what's happening. Here we go. What do you do when you're not? Technical difficulties. (laughs) That's the topic of my sermon today. Last year, when President Kennedy was assassinated, who among us did not experience the most profound despair? Which way? What now? What do I say to my kids? What do I tell myself? It was a time of people sitting together, bound together, by a common feeling of hopelessness. But think of that. Your bond with your fellow being was your despair. It was a public experience. It was awful. But we were in it together. How much worse is it then to the lone man, the lone woman, 
stricken by a private calamity. No one knows I'm sick. No one knows I've lost my last real friend. No one knows I've done something wrong. Imagine the isolation. You see the world is through a window. On one side of the glass, happy, untroubled people, and on the other side, you. I want to tell you a story. A cargo ship sank one night. They caught fire and went down. And only this one sailor survived. He found a lifeboat, rigged a sail, and being of a nautical discipline, turned his eyes to the heavens and read the stars. He set a course for his home and exhausted fell asleep. Cloud rolled in. For the next 20 nights, he could no longer see the stars. He thought he was on course, but there was no way to be certain. And as the days rolled on, and the silver wasted away, he began to have doubts. Had he set his course right? Was he still going on towards home, or was he horribly lost and doomed to a terrible death? No way to know. The message of the constellations had he imagined it because of his desperate circumstance? Or had he seen truth once and now had to hold on to it without further reassurance? There are those of you in church today who know exactly the crisis of faith I described. And I want to say to you, doubt can be a bond as powerful and sustaining as certainty. When you are lost, you are not alone. Oh. Alright. Uh, Alright, we'll just close that out. <laughs> um, now, <clears throat> I'm not showing that as a... Uh, to affirm everything that Philip Seymour Hoffman is saying there. But I do think he's tapping into something that is true for a lot of people. They, they, you know, they tend to think of doubt and certainty as opposite ends of a spectrum. You know, that, <clears throat> that, well, if you're doubting, you're really lacking faith. If you're certain, you have a ton of faith. But I'm not sure that that's actually the appropriate way to distinguish doubt from certainty. Because, for instance, there can be a sense in which your certainty can actually um, become the place of your faith instead of the person or object of your faith. Um, And your doubt, your struggling in the tension of, we talk about the gospel, we're in the middle of the already and the not yet, Jesus has come, but he has not yet consummated his kingdom because we're not in the new heavens and new earth. There is this tension that we live in. Um, 
where there is a place like this man coming to Jesus saying, help my unbelief. I am not yet perfected in my faith. I still have areas to grow in my trust. This is where the gospel really comes to bear on our everyday existence, on everything that we face, the challenges that we face each and every day. It's a new chance to trust Christ anew. Our faith becomes a place of um, wrestling with a person as opposed to either staunchly anchoring in something that we always knew was true or throwing it all, casting it all aside and going, oh, I'm just spinning into a spiral of doubt. Uh, there's more of a tension point there uh, because I, I know some people who get so resolutely certain on either side of this, uh, certain that there is a God or certain that there isn't a God, and somehow they maybe aren't actually engaging the God they're talking about. It's more comfortable to talk about the God than to really interact with him and to really ask the question, God, help me here. Um <clears throat> And, and that really stems from our perception of what, how we understand knowledge is. Because, see, in, in post-enlightenment thinking, we bring the questions, and then we decide what the criteria is for how to, how to meet these questions. Uh, we, we're kind of in control of the, the process, so to speak. Uh, but St. Augustine, he said, I believe in order to understand. He actually reversed this. Not, I'm seeking to understand and then I will believe. But rather, belief comes first. Belief is the ground floor from which you can build any other kind of knowledge. You have to have a faith commitment of some sort. Um, and so, uh, <clears throat> what, what we find in the biblical narrative is we have in the very beginning... Adam and Eve in the garden, God says, don't eat of this one tree, the tree of life, the knowledge, or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what does the serpent tempt Eve with? He asks a question. Does God, did God really say not to eat this? And he starts to plant that doubt in her mind. Well, I don't know. You know, and really, he was doubting God's authority in her life. Something that hadn't occurred to her before, but now suddenly she was going... Well, is God trying to keep something from me? It was a very relational kind of thing. Knowledge is very relational. It's about trust. And Adam and Eve's trust in the love of their God who made them, it began to erode a little bit. And that's why they ran hiding, naked. You know, they're naked and God's walking and asking, where are you? Um... That, that, that base level of belief uh, began to crumble beneath them. And so, so the Bible describes us not as honest seekers of truth, though we might claim to be. I mean, I'm, I'm looking for truth. I'm trying to affirm what is true. Um, <clears throat> the truth is we are alienated from truth because we're alienated from truth embodied, incarnate. We're an alienated from wisdom. His name is Jesus Christ. And we need his transforming us because we are by nature idolaters that's what the bible calls us that we are used to shaping and bending truth sensory truth relational truth what have you and warping it to our own um to our own devices and so that's why jesus was rejected by the very ones who he performed miracles for they saw and witnessed what he did John chapter 5, he, he does the amazing miracle feeding the 5,000 with fish and loaves. 
He multiplies it. Amazing miracle. Right after that, though, he starts talking about unless you partake of me, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have no part of me. And the crowd leaves him. They'd just seen him do this amazing miracle. And then he looks around and it's just his 12 disciples. He's like, aren't you going to leave too? Peter goes, Lord, where would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. So seeing isn't always believing, in other words. And Andrew actually made that point for me in the sermon, if you were there for the 9 o'clock. So so there is this error of this presupposition that we're just neutral explorers investigating the universe and trying to determine what's best. No, I mean, the truth is we are alienated from God because of our sin, our bent towards interpreting things only through our own lens, through our own experience. But the, the gospel comes and it undermines our questions with a question that comes from the very depths of the mystery which we think we're exploring. The question comes back to us. We don't go to the Bible going, huh, I wonder what, you know, I'm going to determine whether or not this is true as we read it. The Bible's asking us questions. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. So we read God asking Adam and Eve, where are you? He's asking you and me. Where are you? Relationally to me. Jesus asked his disciples, he asked Peter in um, Matthew 16, who do you say that I am? The Bible's asking you and me, who is Jesus to you? Um, you know, come, follow me. <laughs> that question, that invitation is extended to you and me. It comes out of the pages of Scripture. That is God speaking to you and me. And so it, it's, it's calling for something from us. It's, it's this relational knowledge, and it's something we're not as much in control of as we'd like to think. Um, we, we also have to answer questions. And so that's what Christianity is. It's wrestling with and grappling with these very personal questions of a personal God who is asking things of us and is drawing near to us. And so our knowledge, it, it actually depends on risking ourselves. There's a risk investment involved. Unlike scientific, objective, quote-unquote, research, which doesn't really involve necessarily the, you know a risk on the part of the one inquiring about information. They're just taking down the data and running the experiment and going, oh, here's the result. No, this is much more like a relational kind of thing. It's having questions asked of us. And so scripture, that's why we talk about the Bible being a story. It's not timeless principles or nuggets for us to just mine, though you will find nuggets that will be inspiring or helpful, and that's good. But it's a story. It's a continuous story full of these smaller Seemingly disjointed stories that make up the bigger story. And so the question for us is, how, how do you allow the biblical story to awaken your imagination? How do you allow it to stimulate and challenge your own thinking, your own behavior, how, your way of being in the world? How does it influence those things? Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge where our knowledge comes from. It comes from fearing God. It comes from acknowledging His authority in our life. Um, recognizing though I am finite, though my knowledge and understanding are very finite, there's one who is infinite. There's one who is larger than me. Um, one of my professors from seminary, John Frame, he wrote big systematic theologies on 
the doctrines of the Bible, the doctrines of uh, God, doctrine of man. At the beginning of one of them, he, he put as like the preface, basically, um, just the, the whole hymn, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. As kind of an acknowledgement, this is really all you need to know. I mean, he wrote thousands of pages of theology. He knew the Bible better than anyone I've ever known. And yet, he said this simple children's song is the foundation of everything. It all has to start here. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. A couple scriptures I just want to mention, and then I'd love to open it up. Um, Romans chapter 8, Paul says, What is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees, but we hope for what we do not see, and we wait for it with patience. There's this element where we can't see what yet awaits us. 1 Corinthians 13, Now we know in part, we see as through a glass darkly, but we shall see him as he is. So again, awaiting a day of further clarity. Um, John 14, Jesus says, I'm going to my Father's house to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come back and get you and bring you with me. And Paul in 2 Timothy 1.12 says, I know him whom I've believed. At the end of his life, his last letter, I know him. Not I know about him. Not I know all the doctrines about him. But I know him whom I've believed. Um, the locus of our confidence, the, the, the real power of any, any confidence that we can have about our faith and assurance, it rests in the one who, in whom our faith is in. Not in the amount or the power of our own faith. So Jesus said, all it, is, all it takes is the faith of a mustard seed, a teensy little seed, and you can move mountains. It's not, it's not an enormous just dump truck load of faith that you need. It's just a little bit. It's hanging on to that thread. It's even in the face of contrary sensory perception going, I know who I belong to. I know who has given his life for me. Greater love is no one than this, that he would lay down his life for me. That's what Jesus has done. And this is why the formative act aspect of worship is so important. Um, weekly, coming together to remind ourselves, to remind our, our sometimes feeble faith, our, our doubting selves about what is really true. Um, coming around others who are in various places on this spectrum. You know, everybody's carrying their story with them when they're there. You know, we're not just um, empty buckets waiting to be filled up. We're carrying our stories with us, and we're wrestling and grappling with what are the implications of this for me today in the here and now. Um, it's a fresh faith, and so it's, as we sang, you know, listening to our shepherd's voice. There is a shepherd. Uh, he gives us his Holy Spirit. And while there's going to be seasons, um, and maybe even long seasons, where you're going to be um, tempted to doubt, um, he nonetheless is with you. And so I just wanted to show one last thing. Um, this Caravaggio um, painting, I just think is amazing, called The Incred Incredulity of St. Thomas. And so this is, if you remember the scene, Andrew actually mentioned it in sermon. I, I, we were on the same wavelength today, I don't know. But <clears throat> this is Thomas going, you know, I, 
you know, unless I touch the side, unless I place my fingers where the nails went, I won't believe. And Jesus comes, and he, I love this painting because it shows Jesus. It's like he's guiding Thomas's finger into the very hole where the spear went as he went upon his death. Um, you know, blessed are those who have not yet seen but believe. And this just captures the awe and wonder of a crucified yet risen Savior meeting one of his normal disciples. You are Thomas. I am Thomas. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And he does. He meets him with awe and wonder. And I just love that. Um, I, let me just open it up for a few minutes. Um, I'd love to hear if there's any thoughts, questions, where I missed it. What, what's going on with you now? What's, how's this striking you? For me, it's not like the faith belief. Like, there's a lot of things that I question in life, but that's something that I, that I just haven't questioned. I've always believed. It's the circumstantial belief. It's the, I know you've got this God, but are you sure you really are handling this situation? Like it's the doubt in, you know, it's my, my human mind taking over what he has already taken care of. And that's where I struggle the most, is in the day-to-day letting go mm. and trusting that he has my best interest. Of course he does, but it's that, it's that daily of letting go and yeah. following him. That's where I struggle yeah. with it, the doubt yeah. the most. And I think that's where faith becomes faith. In the, you know, it's one thing when it's just abstract or a mountaintop, like, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. Jesus, you've got this. But yeah, when, it, when push comes to shove, because mm-hmm. this is what ties us together. This is the other thing I didn't say about that doubt clip about the sermon. Uh, it, we all have fear and anxiety. That is human element. So it's what happens in those times. Right. When, what triggers our fears and our anxieties, and then how do we... How do we then appropriate that, knowing, as you said, well, we, I know God has this, but man, I'm, I'm feeling anxious about this. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely. Yes, very much so. I think uh, mine could be a lot more fundamental, I mean, more base, you know, maybe not far as long, but I mean, to me, uh, certainty as an antonym of doubt works when it's knowable. When there's, as you said earlier, kind of scientific knowledge, if I can mm. go in and do the research and prove definitively that I'm certain, if I can't, then maybe I doubt it. Mm. Um, I think in faith, the antonym of doubt really is belief. You know, you're, mm. you're like, well, I don't know for certain. I believe it, or at least I believe it most of the time, or I think I believe it, and I hope it's true, but I'm relying on a lot of circumstantial evidence. I'm relying on a lot of, you know, my own personal experiences to maintain that faith or mm. maintain that belief. I think that's a lot harder mm. to sustain. Yeah. No. Yeah, I think you're right about that. What I mean. So what's uh, what's helpful for you when you think about that? The doubt and belief. I mean, how do you how do you then <clears throat> wrestle with or cling to belief when doubt feels very prevalent? Well, I think if you look at the things in your life, you know, your, your family and your children and you know, nature, I, mean, I think those yeah. things are the things that you say has to be, couldn't, couldn't be possible without, without a God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
There are big questions and little questions. Like the big question would be an atheist versus somebody who believes in God. And the little questions are, don't seem so little, but it's, why did this happen to me? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. <clears throat> yeah, one one is much more. Um, it's almost like removed from daily life, and the other one is very much embodied in a story. And, and, but I, I I found that those two things are usually much more closely linked than you would think. So the the person that's you know ranting and raving about <clears throat> man these Christians are this and that and there's no God. Yeah, I mean you, if you go on a message board of some kind of for an article or something, I mean it's it's atrocious what you see. But you see you know it brings out the worst in people. But you get these people going expressing an atheistic worldview, for instance, but you know that that's not just, that didn't happen in a vacuum. They themselves may have, are, they might actually be wrestling with the very thing you're talking about. Why did this happen to me? Or, you know, why did, why, if there is this powerful loving God, why did this happen? You know, uh, why did my friend's life get ruined? You know, why did this happen to my sister? Why is there evil in the world? All those kinds of things. I think there's touch points in people's stories that have them grappling with those. So, yeah, I think that's a great observation. The big view from the scientific point of view, like a physicist goes back and finds all the rules that <coughs> determine how we move and how we fall, all the rules and formulas of physics, mm-hmm. and they all depend on some fundamental laws that, that are just expressions that lead to these rules. But then the question that the physicist can't answer is where did the fundamental laws come from? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and and that's not testable, right? You know? It's, yeah. That's right. Well, and the other things, I mean, in in the pioneering science world, I mean, it takes a deep level of uh, some kind of faith commitment in order to figure out what choices to make along the lines of when you're pursuing knowledge I mean, I mean, they have faith of some sort. They have faith that there's something that they are reaching for in, in even the process of scientific inquiry. So, yeah. Any other thoughts, questions, concerns? I know this is uh, not necessarily a helpful forum.
and then you know they would yeah. have died on a cross, which yeah. you know our culture. I mean, what what is that? You know, so it's like the absurdity of the story, the gospel kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, here's these other myths, but then this is the one we believe, and so and then I remember the hearing years ago about someone said that you know had what Jesus did moving someone from doubt into faith is back in the word. So the two apostles on the road to Emmaus or whether mm-hmm. started with Moses and the prophets. You have Moses and the prophets. Yeah. That's what he went to. And then with Lazarus or whatever he said, you have, you know, no, I'm not gonna let you go back to your brothers to tell them because they have Moses and the prophets. And so for me I I struggle with doubt so much, you know, but going, but I love that you said you believe and then you understand. Mm-hmm. And just to say things are true, mm-hmm. to say those things, like in liturgy, to mm-hmm. say that yeah. these things are true, and start with that. And mm-hmm. anyway, that's. Yeah, thanks for saying that. I do want to play. Hey, if you need to go, you're free to. I just wanted to play. This is one of my favorite songs. Um, written by John Newton, um, and uh, it's got the words written on here. But you're free to leave. We're, we're done. I just... Sorry, I just... Oh, I wanted to get that off the screen. I, I apologize. All right. <laughs>
favorite uh, songs. Um, anyway, God bless you. So glad. I'd love to continue the conversation um, outside the walls of this. So um, thanks a lot for your attention and questions and comments. All right.